It doesn't have the rock in it, though, does it? Well, obviously, the times change. What you need now is a large, muscular man covered in baby oil. Hello and welcome to the AV Forums podcast for the 18th of June 2014. I'm Phil Hinton and joining me on this edition are assistant editor Steve Withers. A naked American man stole my balloons. Games editor Mark Botwright. Nurse. Movies editor Simon Crust. Have you ever talked to a corpse? And audio reviewer Ed Selly. You are very beautiful sheep. So we're going to get straight into... <laughs> what did you I've never I, seen I, it. I, I, don't know if that's, I don't know if that's an important an important line or not. I just, just liked it. <laughs> right. So we're going to get straight into things uh, with a review because we very rarely plummet the depths, Steve. Yeah. But this is the first subwoofer review Excellent that we've segue there. we've had for a while. Um, the SVS SB two thousand. Tell us all about. Yeah, the SVS SB two thousand. So uh, last last year, I think it was last year, they had the SB. 1000 and the PB1000. The S in the SB stands for sealed, obviously, and the P in the PB stands for ported. Uh, and I think I reviewed the SB. Did you do one as well? Did you do the Ultra or something? I think maybe. Yeah, I, I did one the size of a fridge, the yeah, SB13. Yeah, you did a big one. But the, the, um, the SB1000 and the PB1000 were slightly more um, affordable in terms of their price point. Um, this year, they brought out the SB2000 and the PB2000. And there's a couple of big differences. One of which they've got a 500 watts sledge amplifier built in there's been some other tweaks in there as well and it has a, a curved metal grill on the front gotta say oh not another bit, curve yeah it's a bit a bit marmite about this one because i i kind of like my grills to be you know uh, cloth <laughs> <laughs> i'm old school cloth grills um this is metal. Obviously, if you've got small children or pets, it's probably quite handy because they can't go and poke their finger into the. Or you sit back. in your lounge playing about with an air pistol. You know that yes. might be quite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it might be quite useful that because it, it could it could be used as a, as a bullet bulletproof shield. It is quite thick metal. Um, I'm wasn't sold on it myself and actually listened to it mostly with, with it off with the grill off. Because um, <laughs> um, I, I just felt like it was too much and and it, and it kind of would slightly put me off the. I mean, in terms of performance, I thought it was fantastic, but. On a purely aesthetic, cosmetic approach, um, I thought it was a you know a bit much this sort of curved metal grill. Some might love it, of course. It's just my personal preference. I would have preferred a more traditional uh, cloth grill like they had on the previous generation on the, on the one thousands. But anyway, um, as as it's a sealed sub, it's relatively small, nice small footprint, which is always handy. I don't think wires are always too keen when people bring in subwoofers the size of a fridge. Um, and uh, yeah, I thought it was a fantastic performer. I mean, given its size, it can it can go really low. I mean, it's got a hell of a kick to it. Uh, it was nice and tight, controlled. It seemed quite responsive. Uh, it worked very well with movies, but it also worked with music, which is not always the case. Um, I know Ed will probably could talk at length about his feelings towards using subwoofers when you listen to music, but people do. And if you do, I don't personally, I'd rather use uh, just two floor standing stereo speakers. But if you do like using a sub with your music listening, I think it's good for that too. Uh, it's 649 quid, so it's not massively expensive. There is a bit more, but last year's were definitely cheaper, but I think there is more in this year's models. So that's why it's a bit more expensive. But um, yeah, in terms of performance, price uh, and size, uh, you know, dimensions all very good. Uh, not massive, not completely sold on the on the curved me- me- metal grill. 
Some might like it, some maybe maybe won't. But uh, all, in, all in all, though, it is a really good subwoofer and uh, I got to highly recommend it. So it uses a, a sledge amplifier, I take it, it really hammers home the bass. <laughs> I think I actually use sledgehammer as the tagline on that review. <laughs> <laughs> How would you love me? <laughs> Uh, no, no, it's it's. Yeah, I mean, I think SVS subs are great. I, I've 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 actually got an SVS sub myself, um, and I, I. I think they. Sorry. As do I. There you go. Excellent. And I think they're they're really good subs. They make really quality subs. They perform superbly and at a reasonable price, which is always a nice thing to have. Um, so if you're looking for somewhere for a sub that's relatively small, you can go for the. Um, sealed sb2000 if you've got more space and you want something with a little bit more kick then you could go for the much larger um, pb2000 which is the ported one and i haven't actually reviewed that yet i've got a pb1000 and i can so i can vouch for the, the size of them the weight of the damn things um but hopefully we'll get one in for review soon and we can have a, have a look at that as well so steve you might have said it and it may have just uh, slipped right over my head but what was the size of the driver in this 12 inch i didn't say it it's 12 inches which is bigger than last year i think last year's was 10 so it's a bigger driver, more amplification. So an extra extra two inches, a nice twelve incher. A big a big solid twelve incher, yeah. <laughs> they can get down to some real depths. I wish <laughs> I put that in the review now. <laughs> it can it can plumb the depths, can it? Plumb some serious depth, yeah. <laughs> uh, right, so SB stands for sealed, uh, PB stands for ported. Now uh, this causes lots of arguments on the forums. Uh, lots of arguments saying you must go with a sealed subwoofer, don't go with a ported subwoofer. Uh, pluses and negatives for both designs, but quickly, um, let's just have a quick 101 session here. Uh, what are the differences between a sealed and ported sub? The, well, the main one is that one of them's got a big hole in and one of them doesn't. But <laughs> on a more on a more fundamental level, um, if you pierce the, the actual box that a subwoofer's in, so air is, air is able to sort of, if you like, move in and out of it, you are augmenting the amount of air that the driver is moving and you can you can generally get a little bit more bang for your buck um and it normally improves the sensitivity of of both a normal loudspeaker and indeed a subwoofer as well the downside is that ports are they 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 bring behavioral traits all of their own um if you push a lot of air well, if you know, if you listen to the wind whistle through the, the eaves of your house, you'll know that the air is not silent. And indeed, if you push a lot of air through a baseport, it starts to make join in and and become part of part of the audio performance of the product, which is less than desirable. And if it's leaving the the, the product at a reasonable speed, if it's quite close to a wall, it's got to go somewhere, and that tends to cause booming and resonance as well. Um, this does mean. There is certainly something to the argument that very, very good subwoofers are, are, are more often than not immensely powerful sealed boxes. The only device that's actually producing any low end actual resonant energy is the driver. Um, and yeah, I mean the the, the SB thirteen that I um, that I reviewed that was that was a, a sealed unit, and it, it had no difficulty going preposterously low but uh, obviously as i say a 13 inch driver with a substantial piece of uh, of casework around it i mean it was bloody it bloody enormous it, it basically was the same height as the arm on a sofa you know so serious piece of uh, of, uh, of sort of equipment now uh, steve has alluded to the fact i don't like subs with music i'm i i'm somewhat judgmental about this 
But effectively, if you are going to do it, there is a lot to be said for sealed designs because they will generally behave themselves rather better than than something which is sort of venting out of more than one place. Um, in the same way that if you have subwoofers with more than one driver in them, be it two actives, one active and one passive radiator, that's still effectively that, – that, that's more – in the way of radiating area to slow down, to get confused, to, to not keep up with the smaller drivers in your loudspeakers and, and to give that sort of wallowy effect. Um, so if you're looking for a subwoofer for music, I do do advocate sealed box single driver subwoofers. Um, but by the same token, if you want something for explosions, uh, you, you probably want to look to, 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 you know, you get more bang for your buck out of a ported subwoofer. I mean, I habitually use the, um, uh, Tannoy TS-212 uh, with two 12-inch drivers, one active, one passive radiator. Now, I turn that off for music because it, it moves very, very slowly and, ve- and, and, and somewhat somewhat out, out of sync with everything else. But it's hugely entertaining for films. So it, it's kind of horses for courses and, and, what, and what you want, basically. Yeah, I'd, I'd go along with that. I, I use the PB-1000 for watching movies, but uh, just use two stereo floor standards for for listening to music well you see when i listen to music i have all four subs on um Ooh, because it's, four subs in your <laughs> well it's it's to balance it balance out the room so yeah i know you know i mean and it, it doesn't mean that it's any louder than having one single sub in there because there's very very small incremental rises in in volume level it's more i know i would you're making a very valid point there it's far better to run a large subwoofer well well within its design tolerances and to take a smaller one and, and you know raz it that's when you know if it is ported that's one then it's going to make a huge amount of noise yeah, and, and running four subwoofers as well you start to take room issues out of the out of the equation as well because you can balance the sound out so the listening positions getting the the best quality of bass not mm. not necessarily the most amount the best quality of bass and, and that has to be musical as well and and Fortunately, the subwoofers I'm using are pretty musical, so I don't have any issues using them to fill in the bottom end when I'm listening to music. And sometimes it's just a little bit of breath, and it can make all the difference. And you know, you don't realise it's a sub adding that. You take the subs out, and suddenly that bit of breath, you know, if it's a female vocalist or whatever, it, it's gone. The the neat floor standards that I use um, in my two-channel system, I mean, they are 28 hertz at plus minus 3 dB. So they go pretty low without, <laughs> out any assistance. I mean, they've got an isobaric sort of base array in the bottom of them. So in other words, a subwoofer to actually augment them needs to be huge and really mm. beautifully engineered. So in many ways, I am setting a really tricky benchmark. Whereas I dare say if you've got stand mounts or smaller loudspeakers... Yeah, I'm you're, talking you're, about you're, normal people, Ed. You know what I mean? Well, to be fair, the, so, the speakers I've got, they're not particularly large. They just hit yeah, tremendously I think, hard. I think maybe I'm wrong on this, and maybe people will, will add their comments underneath this podcast, but I, I would hazard a guess that the vast majority of AV Forums members uh, are going to have subsat setups, um, mm. just because I would imagine, and again, if I'm wrong, people can correct me, that at least 70 or 80% of those people, the system is in the living room. You know, Very few people have a dedicated room. Um, or lucky enough to have a dedicated room. So it has to fit in with daily life as well, and subsat systems are infinitely easier to to integrate that way uh, mm. and add in the subwoofer. And then the subwoofer really has a job to do then. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. 
that is the exception, I suppose. If you've got a subsat system, then you obviously need to use a sub. Oh, of course. I, I, did, I, did, I did say that I was using two floor standards for listening to music, so that's a slight difference. I would also say one other, again, there's always exceptions that disprove the rule, but I would also say that downward firing subs, are essentially, because the driver is working in a different plane to the drivers in your main speakers, that's normally going to be a bit of a no-no. For That's not going to help you for music. Um, modern AV amplifiers can do phase correction for that. It, it just, but ultimately, if you've got slightly different arrays for drivers, that it's not, that's not going to help you along. A, a forward firing or side yeah. firing design, yeah. I would always think, is an advantage there as, as well. As we can see, it's a thorny subject. It's one which causes lots of great conversation and debate uh, on the forum. So if you if you haven't checked out the subwoofer forum, uh, definitely go there and check it out and you know find out what the latest things are that people are talking about. But it is one of these subjects that once you get into it, as we've just alluded to with our short conversation there, once you start talking about sealed, ported, subsat systems... Uh, adding a sub in with music, adding more than one sub, it can get pretty complicated pretty quickly. And another thing that, that I've certainly noticed in my experience over, you know, God, last 12 years of AV forums is that everybody's got an opinion when it comes to subwoofers. And it's definitely one area where there are a lot of arguments, guys, about fairly trivial things because people have different theories and different beliefs in the way that uh, they integrate a subwoofer into a system. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, one, one, I always had fun in games. I mean, when I did run two subs downstairs, it became abundantly clear there was only one really cracking place to place a subwoofer, which meant that the second subwoofer had to be inverted and placed on top of the first one, separated by four golf ball-sized lumps of blue tack, which wasn't the most <laughs> aesthetically pleasing um, no. Uh, no. effect that there's ever I been. For a second, you were going to say inverted and hanging from the ceiling. No, it was it was just placed on the, on top of the other one. It, it was tremendously tremendously effective. But I've, I've got to say, the best thing. multiple sub setup I have ever experienced is uh, it's a video that's on uh, it's on the, the forums. If you can search it, out, it's called the Bat Barn. It was uh, an EV forums members build, and um, it was so, so long ago that I've actually forgotten who it was uh, that had the build, and I really apologise for uh, forgetting your name, <laughs> but I'm just thinking of this on the spot. But he was—he uh, basically used, uh, his cinema was in a barn, so upstairs was the cinema room, and downstairs was basically a subwoofer, uh, with two holes cut in the floor uh, at the front of the room, and I think there was four drivers... But it was phenomenal because basically what he was doing was using the downstairs area um, of this barn as basically sub-enclosure um, with the two holes feeding the base up into the cinema room. And I have to say, it was absolutely phenomenal, uh, the response with music and movies. Um, superb. So there's all sorts of crazy things when it comes to bass and... I, I don't know why it is, Ed, but bass seems to drive the movie experience. That seems to be the thing yeah. that gets the it, adrenaline it separate, running. It separates the man. It separates the the sort of basic experience from something something which is visceral, something which is far more believable. Um, I'm, I'm slightly distracted because I finally found, in respect, reference to what you were saying, Phil, I finally found the uh, the my favourite subwoofer install, uh, which I shall put into the chat box now, called the uh, Royal Device. Um, and uh, it uses uh, it's a horn loaded device built into the floor of a listening room, um, so it actually runs on comparatively low 
low levels of power, but it I think it's good for sort of 16 hertz at plus minus 3 dB. It's just f- absolutely phenomenal. And it's just been just assembled into into the foot of the into the floor of the room. Just as you can see it, uh, if you look down the photo chart, I think it, it's got eight 15 inch um, Fosgate, Fostex, sorry, not Fosgate, Fostex sort of horn loaded bastard drivers in it. So <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that's a, a rich toy for lunatics right there. I mean, it periodically crops up on the forums, but it gets linked to every six months or so ever since I've been joining. <laughs> uh, well, uh, as soon as you were talking there, I went away and found out exactly what, what was what with uh, this subsystem. So it was Mark Goldie's room that we visited. So sorry, Mark, I, I didn't remember your name there, but it was uh, October 2008 that we came to visit and shoot that video. So it was a long time ago. Um, and I don't know if he's still got this room and it's still running. Uh, but basically, the system that he's using, Ed, it's it's what's called an infinite baffle subwoofer. Yeah. So basically, Although to be fair, that's infinite baffle is is a, in, you know in many ways it's a posh term for a sealed sealed box. Um, but in when from what he's from what you've explained there from what he's doing, yeah, the the the, the baffle itself is well. It, it, there's a put it like this: you don't. It's less important that it's not ported when you've got that amount of space to move air around in, and then you can channel it and move it to your requirements. So yeah, it's it's that's that serious low end. Yeah, and I've got to say, I've only ever seen it done once, and it was it was in Mark Systems. I don't know if anybody else has ever done this. Certainly in the UK, I know there's there's a few people done it in the states, but then in the states, you know, they've got the room to do that, haven't they? They can take a whole room and dedicate it to to four drivers, and comparatively <laughs> easy to modify house structures. Yes, I mean, let's face yes. it: if you've got a solid brick sort of structure, as as is as is common in the UK. That becomes, yeah, it's a fair old engineering exercise to start hacking that about and putting a subwoofer channel into it. Okay, so um, that's subwoofers. Uh, that was Steve's review of the SVS, as well as a, a quick uh, 101 on sealed versus ported. And uh, if you've got any questions, then add them uh, to the thread underneath the podcast, or you can email podcast at avforums.com or send us a, a, a message or a question on Twitter at avforums. And that's where we're going to go next because uh, we've only had one uh, Ask the Edits uh, question this week, but it is directed uh, at Steve, who's a TV reviewer. And this comes from Riz, and and Riz is basically saying, why are reviewers keeping silent about the lack of BT2020 support in all UHD TVs on the market? I think what Riz is trying to get at is that we don't mention and we don't measure for BT2020, but there's a good reason for that, Steve. Yeah, there's a good reason for that. No one uses it. It's not part of the standards, and I've never seen a TV that gets anywhere near it. Um, You know... BT2020 is massive. It's bigger than DCI, which is the spec that's used for cinemas. Um, I can't, in all honesty, see any standard they agree on for for um, 4K, ultimate standard being agreed, that uses Rec2020 as it a standard. It can't, just because of the bit depth it would be required. Yeah, it's, just, it's, just un, it's just not feasible. Yeah, so that, that hopefully answers your question, Riz. It's, so, it's yeah, there's basically no point it's... having a go at a TV for not hitting that when I never even expected it to in the first place. No, and there's there's no material that's mastered in that. Um, no, not even se- in cinema. No certainly in the, in the professional uh, sphere, there's no editing systems that work in that realm either. And uh, in post-production, I'm unaware of anything that runs uh, Rec 2020. So that's why uh, it's never mentioned, because it's not... We worth- have actually mentioned it in a couple of reviews. Um, I did definitely measure against Rec 2020, 
on one of the OLED reviews. Um, I think it was the first one. I think it was the Samsung. But you know, out of curiosity, because that had a much wider um, color space. But even that, and that could get almost almost DCI, but it's still nowhere near Rec 2020. And I for bet those... you somebody shot pornography in Rec 2020. When it comes down to it, it doesn't matter what the standard is or how obscure, how bizarre, or how pointless it is, the one medium that there's, always there's nothing, gets There's it. nothing I know, Ed, that, that even works in that. That standard yet so and and for anybody that doesn't know what rec 2020 is um basically that is the color space so um how wide the color uh, is in a picture so what we're talking about here is is uh more color information being added to the picture but what we're talking about is a huge amount of color information being added with rec like 2020 twice the size of rec 709 it's, which is our current standard but you see i think that confuses people when you say twice the size i think it, twice the amount yeah, it tries the amount. Well, t- particularly, and, and to be honest, it's mostly because it's the biggest part of the visible spectrum. Is mostly within green, isn't it, Phil? Yeah, and and uh, obviously that adds adds yeah other other things like brightness issues and so on as well. Because you know if you if you're working in the certainly in in the green and yellow sphere, that's that's where you need more energy because you, that's where your brightness comes from. So I mean, I'd, I'd be happy if they chose DCI as a standard, and that was the standard for um, some sort of future format because that would just tie it in then with. Um, with um, with cinema specs because I'm talking to the guys at Deluxe when I was there a couple of weeks ago. Um, they seem to give give me the impression that the, the ultimate, uh, you know, there's a definite convergence of home cinema and cinema cinema. Uh, you know, and we, I mean, to a certain extent, we're almost there as it is. Um, you know, in terms of we can watch 2K and 4K at home, 1080p and, and 4K is effectively the same thing as a cinema. And it's only really now if you talk about you know sort of the, the bit rates and, and the color spaces, if we can increase those in terms of the home cinema, then we can really start to get to a point where you can watch stuff at home that is identical to what you're seeing at the cinema. So the problem is though is that the, the most likely uh, delivery system for 4K, Steve, is going to be streaming. Yep, it and, is. And, and, they're, and they're as soon as, you, as soon as you add wider colors color space more bit depth you're adding more data yeah and you know you're going to need bigger and bigger pipes to take take the the content unfortunately that is true although you know i mean the funny thing is that technology moves very fast so i mean they were telling me about the original dci specs and they had uh, within the within the specifications there's a, there's, a, there's various um codings and one of them was for a number of hard drives being used to store the uh, movies when they were being shipped out to to the cinemas, and of course they never ever used more than one, <laughs> because by the time they got around to sort of mass, you know, pushing DCI out into the mass market, as it were, um, hard drive, um, you know, storage capacity had increased so much that they, they could stick it all on one drive easily. So you know, things do change. Um, you know, you never know. But at the moment, yes, it's looking very much like because of the way that 4K will be delivered, uh, we're going to end up with um, well, basically what we've already got, but with just more resolution. Right, okay, let's wrap up on hardware for this week. So upcoming reviews, Steve, we have coming. We've got Samsung M5 multi-room speakers. Uh, Mark's already reviewed the M7s. These are the slightly smaller, cheaper versions. Um, but I've got to say, uh, Samsung's multi-room solution is very good. I'm really impressed with it. It's, 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 it's quicker and easier to set up, in fact, even than Sonos, which is obviously the, sort of the, the, the name that most people are familiar with. But it's very easy to set up. It's very flexible. Uh, easy to control from the Samsung app. Um, I'm quite impressed with it in terms of its flexibility and general, you know, um, ease of use. Um, that'll be up. That review will be up well, probably next week, actually. Um, and then we got Q Acoustics. They've got their M4, so <laughs> M5 Samsung multi-room speakers, M4 soundbar with Q Acoustics. Maybe these guys should come up with some different numbers. Um, Mark's reviewing that at the moment. And then I've just today received 
our first LG TV, which is the LB730, um, which we'll be reviewing. Well, I'm reviewing that and also well, what was called WebOS and is now called, rather boringly, Smart Plus. I, I, I think they, uh, don't know why they've done that. I think that was a mistake. I know why they've probably done that because it was a failed operating system in the in the mobile world. But um, I think WebOS was was quite nifty. Well, it and stood it's, out. it was different, yeah. wasn't it? And yeah, WebOS is totally. different from everybody else's. I mean, platform, Smart so Plus not? Smart Plus sounds like everybody else's system. Yeah, 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 I know. Uh, so, I, I was amazing into that. But anyway, that's the, they're now calling it Smart Plus, so we're getting our first chance to actually review that as well. Okay, uh, so that's the reviews coming up. We'll be back in a second with some games news. I've got a review coming up, but I may as well not promise it, just in case something bad. No, no, <laughs> yeah, don't, 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 don't make don't any promises, Ed. <laughs> mm-hmm. When you say coming up, do you mean in the next two weeks? <laughs> no, in the next in the next week. Oh, so great. So the yeah, end so of that's June. the end of month. <laughs> oh, shut up! I'm doing my best. Always under-promise and over-deliver. That's that's you, isn't it? Something like that. Although it's touch and go at times. Right, so uh, games news. Um, Not a lot going on games-wise, is there, Mark? Well, you've just had uh, the biggest game show of the year. So, you know, in the kind of fallout from that, no, there's not a great deal coming out. (laughs) Okay, so E3 uh, was last week. We had a mammoth games podcast so go and listen to that if you've got two hours of your life you don't want two back. hours of spare <laughs> <laughs> it was fully interesting stuff Mark I listened to it this morning and uh, lots of games talk in there which is what you want from an E3 show seen as it is a game show and last year it was dominated by hardware yeah, yeah. Last year, what was very much kind of hardware centric, and it was a little bit, a um, little bit of a soap opera, simply because there was so much going on with regards Microsoft shooting themselves in the foot, and a lot of people kind of proclaiming Sony to be the the saviors of gaming by somehow sticking with the status quo model of of how to release consoles and games. Um, this year was much more about just well, just about the games. Um, it was it was very very even year in terms of kind of the big conferences. Um, even Nintendo got in on the act, even though they didn't have a conference. They had their little, um, digital event, uh, but it, it was very much a year where where everyone kind of played played to their fans. Can Nintendo- I just ask you about Nintendo? Sorry to jump in there, but this this is bugging me because I don't know how they presented this. Just explain what you mean by digital event, because I've seen this mentioned. What you watch this on your browser or or what? Yeah, yeah, it was just a, a direct kind of feed. They, they do these things, Nintendo Direct. So it's it's basically, yeah, they put together their own little kind of presentation, and then yeah, it's just a video that you watch over the internet. And and given the fact that everyone, you know, ninety nine point nine percent of gamers will be watching, you know, the the conferences over the net, it, it makes sense if they're planning on kind of saving money and not, and they don't have a great deal to show off. I mean, the Sony show was two hours long. Um, the Microsoft one, I think, was about ninety minutes. Nintendo got theirs over in about forty. You know, yeah, but and they're they not going to cut some of that. because so, they've got nothing to say. Yeah, they've not got anything to talk about, have they? <laughs> well, it, it was it was a fantastic lesson in how to kind of almost uh, just just carry on regardless. Um, you know, tread put, water. <laughs> yeah, well, they put on a brave face. It was a it was a funny kind of presentation. Um, they had these little kind of robot chicken animation sketches and you know there were the the uh, Satoru Iwata and uh, Reggie Filzame were poking fun at themselves as well a little bit but there is very much the sense that they're smiling to camera and they're saying everything's fine uh, when it, it it probably isn't 
but still, you know, they, they had some new stuff to show off and they played to their fans with, you know, a footage of a new Zelda. Um, I'm not entirely sure about the Amiibos, the little toys that they're going to be selling. But still, again, it's uh, it's trying something different. So, um, Mark, are video games inherently sexist then? Ah, well, this, this was kind of one of the little stories that came out from the show um, because there weren't that many proper stories. Um, which was Assassin's Creed Unity is going to be uh, off a four-player co-op gameplay for the first time in the series, and you can't play as a female character. Now, I think this was kind of okay in general. Most people would say you can take an artistic decision on this kind of thing until the, the technical director came out and said that it would have added, it would have doubled the work to include a female character, and that was... The problem, given the fact that the Assassin's Creed games sell, you know, kind of by the shipload, um, they make huge amounts of money. They've got absolutely massive teams working on them. Uh, you would think that given the fact that most movement in games is, is based on a kind of fairly, you know, sexless, androgynous model um, that they could have put in female characters. Uh, but again, this is one of those things that's kind of been I've got blown one word up. for you, Mark. Bosoms. I think that's where the problem lies. <laughs> well, the, I mean, the, there, there's the argument that perhaps you know games traditionally have uh, male figures because they're you know it's it's a male-dominated sphere, and certainly they're they're playing to their audience. Um, but that kind of argument's been muddy simply because of the fact that you've got the rise of tablet gaming and mobile gaming, and so virtually every statistic these days that says you know, what the split is, what the gender divide is on gaming tends to lean towards it being about 50-50. The problem is it then doesn't go into enough specific detail to say, but what are what are the type of games? I, you know, if, if someone's playing, you know, uh, Angry Birds on their phone or something, if that's, you know, 70% female or something, then that skews things. Well, well there's an argument that certain, activity, certain activities are predicated to certain genders, and there's nothing that it doesn't matter how that there's no there's nothing wrong with their inclusivity. They just appeal on different levels to to, to different genders, you know. Um, but video gaming is a funny one because I I do think that it it doesn't you know it, it's notable that we struggle to actually mention or talk about sort of strong female leads in games and we and just ends up inevitably heading towards Lara Croft and her enormous pixelated tits. Well, that's not totally true, Ed, because of course, Last of Us was one of the biggest games of last year, if not one of the biggest games ever, and that had a major female character in it. No, no, I mean, slow, slow progress is being made, but it, it's it's hardly, hardly and a Lara Croft's bosoms are a lot smaller these days, unfortunately. Yes, if giant sort of polygon boobs are your thing steve then that, that's that's your that's your prerogative but yeah not the most convincing thing I've i ever think seen. i said in the past that i fancied the caramel rabbit cartoon rabbit <laughs> well wasn't wasn't Do the low point time is none of our business, <laughs> wasn't the low point i'm sure mr botwright confirmed this didn't the dead or alive people admit that they had an entire rendering team for breasts I do believe there was a, there was a team assigned to Jigglidge. <laughs> I, I don't think anyone denies that you know if you're playing Battlefield 1942 or, or Call of Duty or Assassin's Creed, you're probably a guy because it, it is very much a male aimed at a male audience. I think it was the, it was a statement that animating women was harder than animating men. That was strange. <laughs> Yeah, that was a little bit odd. I mean, odd. human beings are human beings, aren't they? Ultimately, we all evolve from the same. But what's the what's the Nintendo the, the NES or SNES game where quite 
out of the blue, it was revealed the protagonist is a woman. Oh, you're Norman... thinking of uh, Metroid. That's the Metroid. Spoilers. Yeah. Spoilers. <laughs> Um, again, if you've been, if you, uh, I, I think you can have to handle it. I think the the youngest Metroid is now twenty years old, probably more. So, but that, but that's a classic example of how gaming has traditionally kind of looked at female characters, which is they've just written a male character and just said, "Let's make her a woman." You know, they haven't. It, it's not been specifically written as such, and you know, you are talking about a medium that's very much in its infancy. I mean, if you're talking about in terms of depth, if you look at what was on show at E3 uh, and kind of narrative arcs that they would offer, you're not, you know, there's there's not much in the way, you know, if you're interested in cinema in Schindler's List and that kind of thing, you know, they, you're not going to find much on show, particularly at a time when you, you're constantly changing generations of, of, of consoles. And so, therefore, the question is, how do you get out a product in the quickest possible time whilst developing for, you know, a completely new system? And traditionally, that's just to make some kind of generic iteration, which is, you know, shouty, shooty, military man. And that's usually a male kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, those are the bits I like. <laughs> right, okay. Um, we're talking about a bunch of tits. Games Podcast is also out this week, uh, Mark. Yes, it is. As you said, it was an epic. And there was stuff cut out from that. Bear in mind that. <laughs> okay. God, how long did the recording session go okay. on for? Well, look, I mean, that was, that was a serious record, and that was right after the shows, and I was up until about six in the morning doing the Sony piece because their show didn't end till four in the morning previous day, and I just watched the, the Nintendo one and was writing that up when we started that games podcast. So if I'm babbling slightly more incoherently than normal, then I apologise. You're just high on, nic- on um, caffeine, are you? Is yes. The direct- are we going to get the, the, the director's cut? Game podcast reducts. <laughs> oh, I hope not, because I have to sit and check the thing. <laughs> nice. I'm just joking. Not. <laughs> not. Now there's a throwback to the Metroid era. <laughs> Way. <laughs> sure wing. Lara Croft. Uh, anyway, so if you want to know uh, everything about E3 and what the guys thought and uh, what excited them, what uh, didn't excite them and what could have been done better uh, go and listen to the games podcast it is available now uh, you can go and download that after you finish listening to this and we'll be back in a second with movie news okay uh, starting off movie news as we always do what's at the cinema steve this week phil it is oculus which is a horror film starring karen gillam uh, previously, Amy Pond in Doctor Who. She the and ginger. Say, she the ginger sorry? one. Yes, the ginger one. That's correct. She's nice. Huh? So she's quite cute. Uh, I tell you, what, if her career takes off in a big way, girl, young girls, you know, sort of like teenagers or, or like 10, 10 to twelve year olds with ginger hair are going to get more work experience because they have to hire somebody to play with it. Like in this film, for example, there's a younger actress playing her as a, as a sort of eleven, twelve year old. We'll see had to have ginger hair. And the same, I think, in Doctor Who, when they played a younger version of Amy Pond, although actually that was her cousin playing a younger version. Again, ginger hair. I noticed there's another TV show she's in now called Selfie, and there's another actress who's ginger hair who's playing a young version of her. So it could be good news for uh, ginger-haired actresses if um, Karen Gillan gets more work. Anyway, this is um, this made, film was actually made uh, last year. It came out last year at a lot of festivals, where it did very well. It didn't actually get released in the US until April, and it's only just opened up here. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's actually one of those, uh, films. It's, it's, it's really interesting. It's quite clever in the way that it's set up. 
it sets out its, its rules at the beginning. In fact, in a scene where she, she explains to her brother what she's trying to do, and it sticks to them. And that's always good enough. I like in a horror film. I like them to set, set out some ground rules and then stick with them. Uh, the basic premise of the plot is that uh, a decade before, 11 years before the action taking place in the film, um, there was a tragedy in their family. Their, their father um, effectively went mad, killed the mother, tried to kill them, and the brother had to kill him in self-defense. He spent the next 10 years in a, in a mental, mental institution um, and has just been released, um, having been deemed, you know, well enough to return to society, um, which seems a bit harsh considering he was doing it in self-defense. But anyway, um, he immediately gets out of, out of the institution and then Karen Gillan um, takes him to their old house, the parents' house, which is still empty, but they still own, and um, has basically acquired, through various um, machinations, has acquired briefly this mirror that was sitting and was hanging in their father's study when he went nuts. And she's convinced that the mirror is possessed and it caused him to go crazy. And that's and she's got this whole plan about how she could to prove that it's supernatural and that it was hit the mirror and not her father and that'll exonerate him plus exonerate her brother as this, well. This all sounds legit so far, Steve. Keep going. Yep. <laughs> Um, that's the setup, and then obviously uh, it would be nice. Unfortunately, they kind of play the supernatural card pretty early into the film, like in the first five minutes. If they'd not done that, if they'd left it to the point where the brother, because the brother keeps trying to explain the events she's describing and the research she's been doing about the history of the mirror, which is goes goes back some like three hundred years, and he keeps trying to explain it all with rationalizations, you know, and saying, "Well, this could have happened. That's just false memory, and you don't remember the way it really happened." Because obviously, he's been convinced by the psychiatrist that you know nothing on that, on, on you know, on supernatural happened. It was all just his dad nuts um and if they'd let that play for longer that way i think it'd been better because you know the, the more you can explain something rationally you know i think the more interesting it becomes and it is karen gillen just losing it because you know she hasn't had any professional help for 11 years to deal with the trauma of her father's you know murder and then then trying to kill hit kill them um whereas he has and and i think if they'd done that for longer it would have made it a more interesting film rather than going straight uh, to supernatural uh, am i quickly. the only one that can see the obvious plot hole here what smash the mirror Aha, no, there's loads of that not smashing. Trust me, they have thought of some really, it's clever. I do like the way the film, I really enjoyed it, actually. It's got a very, it's, the ending's a bit obvious um, and it lets down slightly, but otherwise it's quite well set up. It They really do, as I say, lay their ground rules out and stick to them. And there's this whole secret, and the film takes place now, if you like, but there's also lots of flashbacks to the events 11 years previously, and it cuts backwards and forwards between the two very cleverly. Uh, it's it's quite well structured. It's very well made. The acting in his accent, Karen Gillan, who does it, I've got to say, a very good American accent, um, is, is very good in it, as is the rest of the cast. There's Katie Sackhoff in it, who, who played Starbuck in, um, in Battlestar Galactica. She's playing the mother. Um, is it's not afraid to occasionally go quite nasty. There's a couple of scenes in it that, uh, you know, not necessarily overly gory, but they are, they sort of really do hit it sort of, um, you know, our innate fears of certain things, which was done very well. In, all in all, I thought it was an excellent film, except for perhaps the ending, which was a little bit of a letdown. But otherwise, I did really enjoy it. It is very clever. It does stick to its rules. It does play with the audience. There is a growing sense of paranoia. Uh, I, as I said, perhaps if they kept it less obviously supernatural for longer it would have made it slightly more interesting because i think things like the shining or if you've seen it the orphanage you can interpret those films as being just the guy's gone nuts um or the woman's gone nuts in the case of the orphanage and it doesn't have to be anything supernatural about it at all but you can also accept that maybe there is something supernatural about it and i think that that ambiguity makes it more interesting uh, but overall i think i gave it seven out of ten i i thought it was a very it's quite scary in places too as a horror film should be so it's got some good scares some interesting ideas. It's well executed. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. 7 out of 10. 
Excellent. Okay, so let's move on swiftly to Blu-rays that are coming out next week. Uh, Simon, why don't you take us through them? Okay. um, First one on the list is Her, which um, I saw the PR of this this a couple of weeks back. It's pretty good. um, Pretty good disc. Looks good. Sounds good. Peculiar film. I thought it was Um, a brilliant film. Yeah. um, Absolutely uh, brilliant. Just, uh, well, a, a strange concept um a man having a uh, I've relationship got say, with his operating system i don't think that's a strange concept at all and i think that they actually their sort of vision of the future and it's a near future is very prescient yeah yeah and i thought the well, way the relationship like... develops uh it's just like a real relationship i mean it, it was it was it, in the end it, samantha could have been a person she just outgrew their relationship and that's mm. the you know it, hmm. it, i thought i thought it was very very clever it's it's very something which is uh normally i would i would avoid this type of movie, but I'm really intrigued to see it. It's a Spike Jones movie, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, yes. <clears throat> normally, I don't really get along with his stuff, but I do want to see this because I think, like you, you alluded there, Steve, you know, this could very well be our future. Um, and things are moving so quickly with social networking, social media, and the way that mobile phones are used, new operating systems, and so on. I mean, I was even in a car at the weekend that speaks to you. You know, things are they're moving in that direction, so I'm I'm quite interested to see it. I think you were in an MG Maestro. <clears throat> yes, I was. <laughs> oh, that's a blast from the past. That had a talking dashboard. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I'll, I'll go back into my stupor. Uh, anyway, so yeah, I'm quite interested in seeing this one. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's well worth seeing. It's very um, yeah, it's it, it is interesting. It is interesting. Um, next up, we've got the 40th anniversary of Blazing Saddles. Yeah, around more beans. importantly, given that, let's face it, if you like that film, you already own it. Is there well, a compelling reason to buy the 40th anniversary version? Probably not. Well, they, they almost certainly the, the releases to tie it in with, um, you said 40th anniversary, plus also with, with um, A Million Ways to Die in the West coming out in the cinema, which they probably thought was going to be more successful than it was. <laughs> <laughs> they thought, oh, we'll get it out again. Yeah, I wonder if he gets a budget to do another movie, or if that's his movie. Oh, oh no, 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 they're already making Ted too. Are they really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, which you know, uh, I'm sure will do very well. I mean, how many well, more Flash Gordon jokes can you do though? That's that's a issue, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you're right. I can't find any details on what's actually on the disc. Okay. Yeah. But uh, you know, it's 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 a great film. You know, um, if you haven't, if you haven't got, got it, it, get it. Yeah, get it. It's you know, it's even if it's just for that baked bean scene. You know. Um. Next up, we have Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, which I thought was already out, but um, it's not. This is a UK release. I mean, it's out in the States, but it's the first time here. Yeah. Um, another ancient film. Um, well, 1974. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Christ. Ancient. <laughs> I was born in 74. You said I'm ancient. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that's it on the list. I think I'd, I'd, I'd just like uh, to say... Um, there's, uh, I've forgotten one. I know it's an exclusive. Yeah. Um, is Deadwood is coming out as well? I think that's next week, isn't it? The complete series of Deadwood. I know it's exclusive to Zavi, but that's definitely worth picking up. Um, that one. Can I just say Thunderbolt and Lightfoot is directed by Michael Cimino. It's his first film, and it stars Jeff Bridges and Clint Eastwood. And Clint Eastwood it's actually yeah. quite a good movie. And if you haven't seen it, worth checking out. I forgot to add to the list coming out next week: Stalingrad, the Russian movie that was shot in IMAX 3D, um, um, which I, I quite, I'm quite interested in the Battle of Stalingrad for one thing. But also the idea of epic battle scenes in 3D is quite appealing. Uh, it is obviously in Russian, but um, uh, yeah, that's coming next week, and I'm quite keen to see that. 
So come. this is different from the German a... film of the same yep, this name. Is, this, although, bizarrely, it's got the same <laughs> the same actor as in both films. Thomas Cressman was in the he's German He's almost film. immortal. He looks exactly the same as he did when he started acting. He, yeah. he has what my wife and I call Suggs syndrome, where basically <laughs> he's, he's looked the same for 30 years. It's re- I mean, I'd love to know his secrets. It's really impressive. But, I mean, I, well, I, I'll be interested in that one. But, I mean, the yeah. German one... That's a magnificent film. And it features, to my mind, that has to be one of the bleakest endings in cinematic history. I mean, it's very accurate, but I mean, oh my God. I haven't seen it. Is it worth checking out? Oh, damn straight it is. Yes, very much so. Oh, Thomas Cushman is is in that film. He's also one of the Germans in uh, this this Russian-made version, which I think was the biggest budgeted Russian movie, well, not of all time, because obviously War and Peace cost like hundreds and hundreds of millions and use half the Red Army, so we don't count that one. But certainly uh, it's the biggest budgeted 3D movie uh, in Russia ever, and, and it's was shot with IMAX cameras, so it's meant to look spectacular. I'm not quite sure how, if it's a particularly great movie in terms of its story, but um, certainly the 3D is meant to be very good, the battle scenes are epic. And um, yeah, I mean, Salengrad as a story is interesting in itself, so I'm looking forward to that. Can I um, just obviously beyond Blu-rays, uh, we haven't managed to mention uh, Netflix uh, yet, so I'm yes. going to do it you now. You said the N-word! If you've got access to Netflix US, uh, and I know some of you do, um, the Canadian cult movie Heavy Metal has been added to the film rotation. And if you haven't seen that, um, I mean, for example, if you've ever wanted to try salvia, but have been afraid of the ramifications of taking a hallucinogenic drug, you just watch Heavy Metal. It's much the same. Um, and it's also, uh, you may know it better, it's the basis for the South Park episode Major Boobage uh, <laughs> from one of the recent, one of the more recent seasons. It's, it, don't get me wrong, it is in no way, shape or form a good film, but it's uh, immensely entertaining to watch at least once. And it has got a magnificent soundtrack if you do like 80s hair metal. And every now and again, if I drink enough, I do. So, um, yeah, uh, do check that out if you've got the way to do so. I, I will. And since Ed's mentioned it, uh, one of the films that opened this weekend was called is Devil's Knot, which is directed, directed by Atta Magoyan about the Memphis Three murder case from in the States about 20 years ago. Um, that opened at the cinema this weekend, but if you've got Netflix US, you can actually watch it now on Netflix US. So do that if you want. So are you going to go and see uh, Mrs. Brown's Boys next week then, Steve? I would rather put a bullet through my head. <laughs> I've seen the trailer, and it, I mean, if it can't look funny in the trailer, you got to wonder what the rest of it's. Going I to think be. we should insist he goes. He he managed to shirk the One Direction movie. Yeah, I think I think you have to go um, because, and I'll lay in a little secret here. I actually quite like the sitcom, and I've I've been to see it live and thought it was absolutely fantastic. But the movie looks um, the, the movie looks naff as hell. I would rather lick the floor of an abattoir than sit through that. It can we arrange appalling. to do one of the two? Yeah, we can arrange <laughs> one of them. <laughs> So to wrap up on uh, this week's podcast, uh, it's something that um, I posted to the front page this morning and uh, the last time of looking, he says, as he opens up his browser onto the front page, it's had something like 60 replies Um, and we thought it would get quite a bit of interest because uh, it was Simon, Kaz and Steve who sat down and put this bit together. It's the 20 best Blu-rays for picture and sound. So uh, Simon, explain... Uh, the premise you were given for writing this? What we thought we'd do, um, we've all got 
uh, entertainment systems, um, home cinema systems that we all love to show off. That's one of the reasons why we kind of get into this thing. So you can uh, put on a film and sit there and sit back and get that cinema quality and show it off to your mates. And since Blu-ray's come along, there are some absolutely stunning quality discs that have got blistering picture and incredible sound and when you put them together it makes uh, for a fully immersive experience and i think we have to point out at this point not necessarily a good film no no that's what i was just going to come on to say that um and the purpose of this particular list here is to demonstrate the quality of the disc itself in its terms of picture and sound the film has got nothing to do with it in this particular list having said that there are some pretty good films on this list but um and so if you discard the feature itself and just look at the picture and the sound, we didn't even include the extras in this. It was just the picture and sound. Um, and we sat down over a Sunday lunch, Kaz and I, and uh, bashed out this um, this list, um, which is now on the front page for all to see and for everyone to moan at. <laughs> well, no, I, I don't think people are moaning. Ed, whatever happens, Steve, um, it's a blokey thing. 97% of our, our readers are male um they're in the age group of um 20s to you know their 60s um high disposable incomes usually have nice systems otherwise they wouldn't be on av forums would they that's why they're there to get advice and to buy equipment and all the rest of it and to show their systems off um but when it comes to lists people will always have their favorites and you, you know if you're picking the 20 best you're going to leave things out like saving private ryan and so on which you know you, if you're picking 20 you've got to leave lots of them out so um you know what was the difficulties with this putting this one together um i think the the, the point of these films in particular was that some of them um have specific scenes that are great for either demoing your system or we use them in our reviews Absolutely. Um, so, for example, uh, Kung Fu Panda. Not saying Kung Fu Panda is a great film, although it is good fun. Um, but the Skadish bass note yep. will will give any <laughs> any subwoofer for a good seeing to. And um, so, you know, if you want to check, a, say you're reviewing a sub or a, or a um, an AVR, for example, that's a good scene to put on. Um, the in Oblivion, when the nuclear reactor, one of those nuclear nuclear devices blows up again, I watched that film when I had that data sat system in last year and I thought the house is going to fall down. Um, it was so, there was so much base energy in that sequence. Um, you know, in terms of shadow details, and I know you've used this one, Phil, too. Sunshine. sunshine yeah. That opening scene yeah. of sunshine when the spaceship yeah. flies past the camera. There, It's got a lot of high contrast, bright white, you know, light from the sun, but lots of shadow detail within the, the, the metalwork of the spaceship. Uh, and again, it's a great test for shadow detail. I've got to say, the uh, one that I, I always use is not on the list. Yeah, King Kong. King <laughs> Kong, it's not here. But I think there's always a nature that we I, we, we all have go-to films for subtly different reasons uh, and for different sort of test purposes. I mean, I don't, I don't for a second believe it should be on the list, but one film I gravitate to time and time again for test work is Unstoppable, the um, Chris Pine, Denzel Washington train bonanza um because it's actually a re i mean as you know i don't do picture uh, it happens in the background and i squint at it blindly on my <laughs> tiny television <laughs> but the the soundtrack is a tremendously clever and quite interesting um piece of layering it, it, it's happening on on, on a, a very distinct set of levels um 
and there's uh, uh, some some very distinct challenges for speaker packages to to, to handle yeah. um, with with that. Um, and and it also it's conveniently short and easy to navigate and the scene and little just little things like the uh, scene skip points and and and, and end points are in, in in very useful points to get to to test sections quickly and painlessly, which is is also uh, a considerable help. Um, um, and it, I will say it's interesting because obviously Tron is on that list. Now Tron is a cracking DV, uh, cracking Blu-ray. Um, picture-wise, I mean, I, I you know I don't know a huge amount about that, but I, it, it certainly always looks impressive to me. Um, I will say I don't think it has a huge amount of dynamic range, um, you know, in terms of the actual physical levels to which it goes, the highest to the lowest points. It a, a lot of it is just recorded with everything turned up to eleven and redlined, and I find mm. that there's an awful lot of you know, it, it's to the stage where, in during the light cycle sequence, there is clipping in that soundtrack. Never seen it. Yeah, you know, I'll put my hands up. I, ha I have not seen that one. You're not really um, missing out in a film so. sense. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's pretty, and the Daft Punk score is magnificent. One of my favourite film soundtracks. But nonetheless, Tron for me has audible clipping in it. It's recorded. It's like a Metallica album. It's recorded <laughs> as loud as it will possibly go, with very little in the way of actual yeah, dynamic range. Right. That well, I, I did pick up that a few people complained that there was uh, there was animated um, films in in the list. But I'd have to say that my go-to disc for the best sound design I have ever heard in a movie uh, is an animation um animated film and that's wally -E. and mm. it's yeah. it's also where picture and sound and when you when you say that sound 50 percent of the experience wally -E is is a perfect example of this because for large parts of that movie there is no dialogue whatsoever yeah, it's, it's almost a silent movie for the first exactly it, it, it's all sound design yeah, and it's all sound design and it's properly brilliantly done and uh it's all done from scratch as well because none of the things exist really uh, apart from a couple of items that they could maybe have used it's all made from scratch as well and you've got to put your hands up and say that is astounding work and especially the fact that you don't realize that for the majority of the film and there's no dialogue yeah i mean uh, we should point out that uh, there are two more lists coming one about top 20 or 20 best 3d movies and also uh, sort of 50 best blu-rays more general um, um, list, basically. Uh, so obviously, rather than overlapping all the time, some things that haven't been mentioned here will get picked up on other lists. Uh, but certainly in terms of uh, picture and sound, I can't really... I mean, Lawrence of Arabia, for example, I mean, that's that's taken from a 65mm source print in an 8K res um, resolution um, restoration and down-rested to Blu-ray. But um, the picture quality on that is absolutely stunning. I mean, I think people often forget. People think, you know, it has to be a modern film shot on digital cameras. No, 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 no. Some of the best stuff you'll ever see, you know, some, I mean, stuff shot on 65mm, that's that is high resolution yep. in 8K. So that's the source print, which has been taken care of and properly restored, is going to look absolutely incredible. Yeah. And yep. Lawrence of Arabia does. Yeah, Alonso, are absolutely stunning. I, I still can't get over the quality of that. And another one which is, is forgotten quite a bit is Braveheart. That's got to mm. be one of the best encodes I've seen of, of film to, to Blu-ray. It's astounding. I mean, the, the range in the image, you know, the, sh the amount of shadow detail, and it's it's not a, a compressed mess either. It, it genuinely looks stunning, especially if you've got a scope screen. It just looks unbelievably yeah. good. It is, unfortunately, at the end of the day, still Braveheart. <laughs> 
from the Professor <laughs> Mel Gibson historically. Well, you, you know what you know what they said at the time, don't you? That a Mel Gibson, you know, he'll be a terrible Scot. Well, look at him now, racist drunk. <laughs> <laughs> all the all the qualities of being a good Scotsman there. Yeah. I mean, of the more recent stuff that's on that list, I think Gravity. I think most people would, would agree that, that that that's become a de facto um, t- sort of demo disc for lots of people now, both in terms of two D and three D. Um, it's got a, because because of the nature of its sound design. Um, you know, if you're testing a surround system for its, you know, sort of um, the holosonic surround system and and in its tonal balance of your speakers and how sounds are steered around the room, the sounds in, in that movie are, you know, particularly things like voices and any other effects are steered around the room to match where somebody is from the point of view of, of the protagonist. So uh, it's got a very dynamic uh, um, sound design with a lot of steering in it. So a good test for any system. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, kudos to uh, Kaz and Simon here uh, for the list because the, there are some good ones in here that people normally forget, like Minority Report, usually overlooked um, when it comes to these types of lists. Good to see that in there, as well as the uh, Aviator. Um, I'd forgot how good that looks and how good it sounds as well. So nice to see them in there, Simon. Thank you. Yeah, we. Um as I said, we we took a, a long while deciding on on these these lists. It was um, a collaborative effort, and there was a lot of backwards and forwards and emails. And as I said we did actually have to physically get together and discuss it because it was just so much easier to argue which film we wanted on the list. And it was very much um, a debate on. Yeah, it's much much easier to have a fist fight. Absolutely. <laughs> well, <laughs> we we did have our respective partners, and they would have pulled us apart. <laughs> <laughs> No, Kaz, he's not worth it. Leave him alone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mr. Botwright has been a bit quiet here. Uh, let's pull him away from the football just for a second, just to get his thoughts on the list. Well, obviously, it's missing Shogun Assassin. <laughs> no, no, actually, I wasn't going to say that. I was going to say that in terms of, uh, well, if we're going down the Japanese route, missing Akira. Ah, uh, it's animation, so we've already got too much animation on there. Yeah, I know, that. that's the only issue, isn't it? I think there's a limitation to the resolution. of. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a magnificent film. I haven't seen a Blu-ray of it. Is it substantively better looking than the... the soundtrack th- on it is staggering. I don't doubt the soundtrack would improve considerably because the soundtrack is mighty. But visually, is there much more you can do with Akira? Visually, yeah, they've, they've brought out a whole level of detail there. It really is a, a lot finer. And I thought the, the, the DVD was already decent enough. Um it's it's cleaned up spectacularly well, but they haven't completely destroyed it. You know, they haven't taken away any of the grain structure there. It it does look very nice. I don't watch it that often. It just makes me cross every time I do that we don't have feet forward motorcycles. <laughs> I um, I still have no idea what's going on in that film. I've seen it a few times, but the first time I ever saw it was at a, a screening, a rare back before before DVD and even you know when the early days of VHS. It was screened at the Watershed Cinema in Bristol. This was in the late eighties. And um, I went to go and see it because it was everyone we talk about this, you know, this great Japanese manga move anime from uh, from Japan. I thought, let's go and check it out. My friends and I went along. It turned out at that same screening, and there's about probably 200 seats in that cinema, was also Edgar Wright and um, Simon Pegg. My little. Oh, is this another one of Steve's pub stories? Jesus. Hmm. <laughs> they were there. The only reason I know they were there is they were talking about it in, sat in, in one of the commentary tracks. Oh, yeah. yeah, okay. <laughs> and, and who lives down the road from you this week? Peter Gabriel. <laughs> Do you pop round and ask to borrow his sledgehammer? <laughs> yeah, I bought it for that um, SVS review. How's, how's that for bringing it back to the beginning? <laughs> yes. So on that bombshell, 
that is it for the Reforms podcast this week. Uh, don't forget you can check out the 20 best Blu-rays for picture and sound on the front page. And by the time this podcast goes out, we will have the 3D article up. And will we have the, the 50 best ever Blu-rays up there as well? Um, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Under okay. promise and over deliver. The letter end of the week, I think, that one. Okay. Uh, so anyway like I say that's it, that's it for this week um, don't forget you can ask your questions at hashtag ask the idiots on Twitter at AV Forums you can also send us an email to podcast at avforums.com or just put your question or your comments under this podcast in the podcast forums at AV Forums uh, so all I need to do now is thank Steve Withers shall I be forced to feed you David Mark Botwright I will not be threatened by walking me Simon Crust those sheep shit on my pack and Ed Selly if you put it in your mouth then you'd be sure not to miss don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook bookmark avforums.com for the latest reviews news and video plus why not leave us a rating on iTunes I'm Phil Hinton thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you again next Wednesday (laughs) 